Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization Podcast. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by a, another good friend of mine from the Windy City, from Chicago. I'm joined by Norma Moruzzi, Associate Professor, Political Science, Gender and Women's Studies and History, the Director of the International Studies Program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Norma's written extensively on, on political theory and its application to the Middle East. With a, with a keen focus on Iran. And I think that she's got a great deal of really important things to say about, about the region and about the study of the region from a slightly different angle to what we've normally heard about on, on these podcasts. So Norma, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you, Norma, and the same to you. I'm, I'm really pleased that we were able to, to sort out a time, given all the different diary scheduling issues and time differences, but here we are. We're going to talk political theory. We're going to talk Iran. But first, can we talk a little bit about, about your, your sort of intellectual journey, if I may? What got you interested in, in political theory to begin with? No, that, that's a... I hate when people start out by saying that's a great question, but it is a great question. <laughs> so I think my interests are um, almost sad to say they're often deeply personal, right? They come sure. out of my own experience um, in the most ordinary kind of ways, like the most intimate family ways. So uh, basically my interest in political theory uh, comes from my interest in, in, in literature, in reading, uh, and my own curiosity uh, and the fact that I started reading Hannah Arendt when I was in my teens. Uh, and wow. that's, again, about sort of just happenstance and family background. I was spending a lot of time with my aunt. And at one point, she handed me The Origins of Totalitarianism. Uh, I was a voracious reader and kind of and a bookworm and, um, and said, here, you should read this. I think she was sort of tired of me constantly jumping around and reading a lot, but maybe without any focus, kind of just whatever yeah. came to hand. So she, she literally handed me the book. She pulled it down from her bookshelf and said, uh, here, why don't you read this? This book changed the way I think. Okay. And, um, it changed the way I think, uh, or it, it completely, it very much shaped the way I think. It started a lifelong interest in Arendt. I didn't finish it at the time. I did sure. carry it around for several months. But <laughs> no, when I was 16, 17, I did not finish uh, the origins. But but I, I read uh, Arendt more systematically in college, and um, she sort of stayed with me ever since, and that laid the foundation for my thinking about and doing political theory. What was it about Arendt, though, and, and Origins that really piqued your interest? Can you remember what what your reaction was when you first started reading it? Because it's such a powerful book. What was it that spoke to you? Uh, the fact that she's so historical, right. to tell you the truth, and that her take on history um, is unconventional, right? It's, yeah. it's about answering political questions. I mean, she's very, she's as objective as she can be, but she's interested in political questions, not simply historical questions. But she puts those things together. And that was very, very important for me. I think that it, it spoke to the same kind of questioning sense I had. And it provided clarification on questions that even the questions were very blurred for me at that point about, about the intersections of political and religious identity. 
Right. Uh, in a in a in a modern world, in a secular world, I was raised in a very secular household. Uh, what does it mean? What it, my parents were um, either first and second generation immigrants, and they very much were of the generation that that subscribed to the no notion, the American notion that you, it doesn't matter where you come from. It's who you make of yourself. Yeah. Um, the, this was still more the melting pot theory of American identity. You know, you sort of subsume yourself within a, a, a larger, um, national identity that's based on, on, uh, a shared project, uh, rather than for instance, ethnic identity. Uh, so it's, it's a kind of anti-nationalist nationalism in its in, in a sort of idealized form, maybe. Sure, yeah. But that also left real questions about then what are all these ethnicities and religiosities and the, and the, and the combination, especially for Jewish identity, of a religious ethnic identity. You know, how does that work? Isn't that something we're supposed to have outgrown? Well, no, not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Aaron's gave me the historical analytic tools to understand where... Um, some of these modern or contemporary versions of nationalism came from. And, and I have to admit, so some things were uh, answered or clarified for me in reading that, and some things were really, really questions. Like, I completely was confused by her whole, whole discussion of Balkan nationalism. Right? There's a whole section in The Origins about you know, Balkan expansionism, which reading in, you know, the mid late 20th century didn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, except that, uh, this shows how old I am, you know, whatever that was 20 years later or something like that with the breakup of Yugoslavia, it suddenly did. And that was something else. I mean, as a sign of how she stayed with me, you know, she's not always fashionable, but she's, she was curious and she was willing to sort of investigate questions and issues that, struck her as significant, even if they didn't seem to be to most people at the time. And guess what? Things come around again. Yeah, yeah, they certainly do. I, I, I share your enthusiasm for Arendt, as, as we've talked about in the past, and I, I find her fascinating. But she's a, a particularly difficult philosopher to pin down in terms of, of what she is. Before we move on to to the, the application of this, and I'm keen to, to get your thoughts on how you apply Arendt, what would you, how would you define Arendt in terms of her, her body of philosophical work? Eclectic. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think that's exactly it, right? She she wasn't she wasn't part of any school. She wasn't interested in being any in any school. I don't think she wasn't really welcomed in any school, right? She had yeah. tensions with with uh, friends and colleagues, you know, in 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 uh, whatever uh, Frankfurt School Marxists on conservatives, you know, she's anti-modernist. I mean, everybody classifies her differently. Uh, again, that's part of what for me is of interest. She's not, she doesn't subscribe to an ideology. Mm. I think she, if anything, she subscribes to certain questions. She's always asking certain questions, questions about power, questions about, um, uh, ethics, like there are questions that are consistent, although you know she's always answering, reconsidering them from a slightly new perspective uh, in her work. But yeah, she doesn't fit easily, and uh, that makes it sometimes difficult for people, right? She doesn't fit a brand easily. Yeah. So now there is sort of an Aaron Studies industry, as there are for many many larger figures, um, but. 
you know, it's it's part of what I find valuable in her. She's not easily classifiable. And in this day and age when everything has to be a brand and everything has to be, you know, quick, one, two, three, sell that, you know, the sort of elevator pitch for political theory as well. Yeah. Um, she doesn't fit that way, but that's, you know, it's it's so ironic, isn't it, that this this pressure to summarize everything as briefly as possible comes in a time when the world is increasingly complex and she's a complex thinker who matches the yeah. world yeah she certainly is and and a, a fascinating one at that just um you, you you did a lot of stuff in your in your studies about Arendt and about her her thought and the application of it but then you seem to apply it to to the Middle East. What was it that prompted that move towards a, a focus on the Middle East? Would you say? Well, I think it's it's two things actually, and and one is just around the time that I had finished my dissertation. Um, you know, so end of graduate school, but I was still in graduate school, just finishing. Uh, was the first really big um, headscarf issue in France. Right. The first big foulard issue about banning the headscarf, not banning it, suspending students, integrating them. And this was under a a socialist, under the socialists. So, again, this is back in the 80s. And and I I'd been thinking about Arendt and Arendt's primary focus in terms of minority identity is Jewish identity. It makes sense. It's not just I don't think it's just that she's Jewish. It's that the primary marginalized, persecuted identity mid-20th century is Jewish identity, right? Mm. I mean, uh, she also, part of the brilliance of origins is that she's got that whole middle section is on imperialism, which is not just about Jews. It's about Africa. It's about colonialism. But, um, but she's theorizing Jewish identity, and she's very adamant that there isn't— there may be historically specific things about Jewish identity, but it's not something, it's not about endless, all-consuming anti-Semitism as a religious aspect, right? She she looks at the political history of modern anti-Semitism as a way that a minority is targeted and becomes to epitomize certain problematics for the system of nation states. I mean, that's her book. Yeah. Her, or not just her book. I mean, that's her 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 position. Sure. So, so I've been thinking about, about Jewish identity, but it struck me with this, that, um, case in France, that the, the sort of current example was not so much of Arentian, the Arentian problematic, was was for Muslim identity. And you could really see this in that case because um, the it's a very specific story, but basically the um, the the some students were were suspended. Uh, three young Muslim students were suspended for wearing headscarves in the classroom, defying you know the secular state and yeah. also to some extent the the Christian um, nation. And uh, the the socialist government um, wanted them to be reinstituted. Right. So they went against the man. And this caused this huge uproar across the right and the left. And that's what caught my attention, that both the right and the left were appalled by this, but for completely different reasons. Right. The justification on the left was about the secular state and the revolution uh, was being transgressed. And the justification on the right was about French Christian identity. So this was before they were saying Judeo-Christian, right? French Christian identity. But it was an alignment of the right and left against a minority identity position. And that really caught my attention in Arendtian terms. So I wrote an article on that uh, that was eventually published in Political Theory, but 
it was so where in which I did a sort of genealogy of the case and then an analysis of it as well. So that was the first time I I explicitly sort of went off in a different direction, and and then people started asking me, well, you've worked on, on all this on Arendt, and she works on you know Jewish identity. So what are you doing on Muslims? Which always struck me as like, really, we have to just lock ourselves in an identity silo here. <laughs> but yeah. um, so I'd already started working on that, started thinking along those lines. I mean, looking about. Um, contemporary issues of Muslim minority identity uh, specifically. So that was, you know, Muslim immigrant and and citizen identity in France, you know, to some extent in the U.S. And then the other side of it is, and this gets back to the family angle, you know, that intellectual and family are always linked. Um, So my husband that, you know, we've been uh, graduate students together at Hopkins, um, Kaveh Asani is uh, Iranian. And uh, one of the things he'd said when we got married is, uh, I really want you to see where I grew up. His parents were both still alive and living in Tehran. And he'd done his field work in Iran. And so I went to Iran um, as a family member, right? Amazing. I didn't know anything about Iran. I didn't know much about the Middle East except I, what I'd read in the newspaper. Sure. But I went because I had a family opportunity to go. And so I met people completely as a like not just a private citizen of course a private citizen but as a completely personal you know family endeavor but that got me um started because i was there and um the first time was in 1992 so it was the very beginning of it was very soon after the official the end of the war things were still really tough uh, economically, et cetera. But it was a really fascinating place. People were extraordinarily welcoming. That was one thing. I mean, I really benefited from being an American and in some ways not an Iranian American, just an American who was clueless, but kind of wide open and smiling. People were so nice and so generous. So, you know, I had a a, a nice time, a very confusing time, but a nice time. But I also started noticing that things were really changing and that politically, and this happened more and more over the next coming years, because I went back and forth some. Kaveh was doing research there. I would go spend time with the family. I mean, this was really just, I did the proofs of my, my Arendt book, um, speaking through the mask in, in mask, speaking through the mask in his parents' house, right? Spread out on the table there. So I was, was still working on Arendt, but I was paying attention. And part of what I started noticing was that what was happening in Iran in terms of political opening of the society, not so much the state, but the society, yeah. was exactly Arendtian politics. Of course, Arendt is never really that interested in the state. She's always interested in politics at the immediate level, yeah. uh, at the human level. And that's what was going on around me. So I, then, then I started really having to pay attention in a more serious way. So that was that was sort of the beginning. It's, it's incredible. It's a real personal story. And I should just remind everyone that uh, Kaveh Asani, friend of the pod, he was on an earlier episode that was talking about, about his own experiences of, of researching in Iran. And it's fascinating to hear what was going on at the same time as that, but in a completely different way. So I, I wonder, what, what did Iran... I'm sorry, what did Arendt... <laughs> give you in terms of of helping to understand Iranian society at that point then? Uh, There was a kind of energy, a kind of political awareness and energy and a sense of transformation, not just at the social level, at the individual level, 
that was going on all around me that people were intensely aware of that I can only describe as Arendtian. And and if people haven't read Arendt, I mean, this is especially comes, for instance, from her writing in The Human Condition, yeah. her book, The Human Condition, where she's got this whole description about politics as something that is is she describes as action, but action is politics and action in a very Aristotelian way is really speech. Uh, it is, it is our mutual exchange and that this transforms us individually and collectively. Uh, so it's a kind of Aristotelian understanding of politics, but then she sees it as the sort of highest, uh, experience of being human. And, uh, and she says this this happens intermittently. That's part of the point. I mean, it, it requires institutions, but then it's also sapped. The energy of that transformation is sapped by institutions. So it's a it's a kind of catch twenty two inevitably. Um, but it was happening around me much more profoundly and much more widely than uh, in ordinary society in the U.S. And and this was also partly because I was mostly in Tehran. I was with, I was able to interact with lots of people who were caught up in this process, especially people who were excited by and participating in the opening of independent media. So that was yeah. a period when uh, newspapers were being opened and then often closed down and then reopened hmm. um, every few months. They were passed from hand to hand. I mean, it was, again, there were things that as a, a historically minded political theorist, you never expect to see. There's a great line in Foucault writing about the revolution where he says that he's talking about Rousseau's general will. And he says, you know, we all read about this. We all know about this. I'm paraphrasing. But you never expect to see it happening. Sure. And that he says that's what he felt he was seeing on the streets of Iran during um, the revolution. 1978, 79. But um, I mean, it wasn't a revolution I was seeing in that sense, but it was a, it was a kind of, um, it was revolutionary. It was an opening up and it was people discovering each other. So after, people forget this, but after Khatami was elected the first time, part of what happened is people looked around. It was an, a landslide election and they realized other people think like me and my little tiny group of the only people I've been willing to speak to. Uh, so it affirmed a, a, a much wider feeling of desire for change, desire for opening up, and that led to increased discussion. So in the U.S., we tend to be really jaded and probably also in, in Britain, you know, jaded about discussion. It's just talk. Politicians just talk. They don't do anything. Words are cheap, this sort of attitude. But but that wasn't the case in Iran. Talking was dangerous. It yeah. mattered. Uh, and it was about ideas. Sure. Uh, and so that that and it was happening. Uh, it was happening in newspapers and newspapers were handed. This is what I started to say, like early versions of, of print media. They were handed around. There were studies done at the time about how many people, how many eyes tended to read an individual print, you know, piece of yeah. a newspaper. Right? Sure, yeah. So somebody would buy it. It would be read in their family. It would be passed along. I mean, you would you get a, a, a surprisingly large number of people reading every individual uh, copy and, and the excitement around that. So, and it wasn't just newspapers. It was what the newspapers represented because they were the beginning of opening up, discussing possibilities, discussing alternatives, dis- just hearing alternative voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, that was part of what was going on. And it made me think, I need to understand more about this. I, I didn't know much at the time at all, but I could sense something was happening. It's, it's fascinating to, to hear you speaking about this and to hear you sort of reflecting on it from that Arendtian position, from a, a non-traditional, 
account, sort of moving beyond the traditional histories of of transformation, of opening up of societies. It's really interesting to hear hear these stories, I guess, in a different way. But I wonder, Norma, what, what response the, the people in Iran have to Arendt when you talk to them about her work? Well, that's the other interesting thing and, and extremely gratifying as a political theorist is that during the, the period that I was often in Iran, and that was really from 1992, which was the first trip until 2007, um, intellectual ideas and philosophers were hugely important and often treated like rock stars. So yeah. when Habermas came to Iran, for instance, I mean, it was literally standing room only. He often um, leading intellectuals who came, um, you know, from 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 global intellectuals like 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 Habermas to uh, uh, leading intellectuals, but not necessarily global in the same way. Um, others who would come were were often. Uh, given positions to speak, you know, I mean, given a, a, a series of talks, for instance, at uh, the Institute of Philosophy, the Iranian Institute of, Institute of, Institute of Philosophy. So every discipline in the in the, the university system has a, a research institute associated with it in Tehran. And these are, they're part of the university, but they're also independent, both they're sort of managed independently, and they also have a separate campus. So they're often in former private homes, sometimes Khajar mansions, I mean, fancy homes with gardens around them, and they're spread around the city. So they're, 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 they're a separate physical entity as well as a semi-separate um, institutional entity. And the Institute of Philosophy would host the lectures by these outsiders. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mansion with a, an old Qajar, you know, 19th century yeah. stone mansion with a, a large lecture room that opens out onto a walled garden in the middle of the city. And I remember when, when Habermas was there, I mean, it, it was standing room only even in the garden, right? Wow. I mean, Habermas is an important figure, but you don't get crowds like that in hmm. the West. No. This was a place where where people understood that ideas mattered. They had significance, uh, and they wanted to hear them, including intellectuals' ideas, especially political theory. So, you you know, you you could talk to people and aren't in among among many other theorists, right? Were were widely read, discussed felt to be important to daily life, uh, not just by a couple of, you know, specialists, academics like you and I, but by um, or the ordinary reading public. So that's an educated public. But remember, I mean, at this point, under the age of 30, uh, Iran has like full literacy, and it's full literacy by both men and women. It's 98 point something like sure, that, yeah. under age of 30. It goes down slightly if you take the entire population, because it had, at the time of the revolution, uh, it was a majority illiterate population with a huge discrepancy between men and women's literacy. So that's one of the achievements of the Islamic Republic is a, a, a mass a push for mass literacy that's been extremely successful, including closing the gender gap in literacy. So you've got you, you've, you a reading public doesn't just mean a tiny group of people. And because that was very early days of the internet, et cetera, I mean, people read books, right? Books yeah. mattered. The, and and they they wanted to discuss them. Amazing. Wait, why why was a rent so popular, do you think? Why were philosophers so very popular beyond this sort of spreading of ideas, do you think? 
Well, it's also true that uh, then and now uh, the state is authoritarian. So <laughs> yeah. there are limits on, on what can be published and on what can be said. That's part of what made newsprint so exciting, the newspaper so exciting, and what they consistently would get closed down for was pushing the lines. But then at the same time, everybody knew where the lines were. That was then. I, they started, that changed a bit under Amini Nishad. I mean, the problem, one of the problems then was that the lines weren't clear anymore. It was very hard to know how hard you could push people. It became much more insecure for everyone who was doing any kind of uh, work for change, any kind of change, not just political change, social change, environmental change, just the, the any kind of, uh, of alternate voice became problematic for the regime. But at that time, um, you, there, you know, there were, there were, clear lines that you, you couldn't cross or maybe get too close to, but also that meant that there was a lot of more coded discussion, right? Yeah. So that's why film was such a such an important medium. Narrative films, uh, you know, feature films that were that that were apparently simple stories, but contained within them also critiques about 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 class, about the economy, about corruption, about gender norms, all sorts of things like that. Because they were they were clear to people who understood the local vernacular, and it was the same with philosophy. Philosophy could discuss big ideas with big implications uh, in a more general way without necessarily um, targeting specific, directly, explicitly targeting uh, specific local interests, right? The implications yeah. were very clear. Sure. But, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm discussing whatever could be said by someone uh, who might be questioned about that. And it was, yeah. a, it was a sphere that was tolerated, too. It's, it's really interesting, really sort of quite, uh, quite creative as a means of, of talking about the important things, but doing it in a way that was, was tolerated, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. It, there was a space for that, mm. um, a, a space for ideas. Uh, I think there was, you know, one of the reasons that the Islamic Republic has lasted this long, despite, I mean, the state in that sense, yeah. uh, despite all of its problems and all the challenges it's faced, internal and external especially, is because they've been very savvy about about um, how much to repress this is not an endorsement. This is saying that they, they've been smart uh, for most of the time, and they've, they've crushed some people, but they've also allowed outlets. Sure. Uh, and that isn't just, it, it has not only been a, uh, the sort of bargain of, of buying people off economically. In fact, that hasn't particularly been their bargain because they haven't been able to offer that. It's not like certain other parts of the Gulf and increasingly other parts of the world where, you know, you don't have any rights, but, um, you know, if you can buy stuff, if you can buy commodities, what should you care? Why yeah. should you care? So in Iran, they, they haven't been able to offer that bargain for the most part and certainly not to the same scale. So they have, um, the state has, has backed off and allowed freedoms, but also that's because of the society. It's not just the state. It's that this is a post-revolutionary society. And by that, I mean a society that, uh, that that fomented a successful revolution, brought down a very powerful state with a powerful military, with powerful backing, uh, and sort of deeply knows that. And even though that means that there's there's constant incremental change and constant incremental challenges by the society uh, pushing back against official limitations. 
Uh, doesn't mean it's always successful, but sure. the, pressure, the pressure from below is, is there. I wonder, Norma, we've taken up so much time, but I've got two questions remaining, if I may. And I wonder if you can say a little bit, building on that last point about the, the Green Movement and the events of 2009 is, as one of those examples of, of society pushing back and, and going into a, a sort of a, a point of, of negotiation with the regime, albeit in many cases a violent negotiation. I wonder if you could just say a few words about that, please. Yeah, I'll try to be quick um, about that. But I think one thing about the Green Movement is that it 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 came from a sort of latent period. So so a number of us who were a bit older than some of the young people at the time were thinking, oh, this is such an apolitical generation. They don't really care, you know, they are as long as they're, they're just focused on their private lives. But then uh, with the election and the sense, the widespread sense that the election had been stolen, they came into the streets massively. And that was a surprise for many of us, including people who been yeah. closely involved in Iran for the time, that, that there was this level of, of political commitment that was uh, sort of waiting uh, to be motivated when necessary. Um, it was also, I think, a sign that, that this, the whole nation, and especially the young, really believed elections matter, right? It may be a limited choice, but it is our choice. Uh, and I think the state had to really learn that, too. It, the elements of the state really overreached uh, in terms of manipulating. Manipulate, elections had been manipulated since the revolution, but they also had been allowed to stand. The final outcome, for the most part, had been allowed to stand. And um, so there was this amazingly, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, presaging of the Arab Spring, right? I mean, this sure. amazingly hopeful, peaceful, nonviolent, democratic, uh, unifying protest, in part led by young people, but not only young people, that transcended class and gender lines uh, and geographic areas, uh, that then was crushed. So yeah. that leaves a, a scar, but it also leaves the sense that, um, that the state had to back off. In, in the Iranian case, I mean that there was a there was a consolidation of pressure, a consolidation under Ahmadinejad, but it also chastened the state that they they'd overreached and they'd broken a bargain with the society. So that's led to it's it's had ramifications since then. Yeah, sure, and I guess if we had more time, we could talk more about that and the implications of that in terms of of sovereign power and relations between regime and society. But but I fear we've we've taken up so much of your time already, Norma, that it would be uh, it would be remiss of me to ask such a, a taxing question. <laughs> but I, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit. And uh, this is maybe giving a little bit too much away, but perhaps you can tell us just a little bit about what you're doing right now in terms of a rent and uh, and and its application or the ideas in, in Iran? Uh, well, so, okay, so just the, the final thing, yeah, uh, my <laughs> office, uh, what I suppose I should be doing instead of speaking with you, although this has been such a pleasure, uh, is working, uh, trying to finish a, a book manuscript which is based on uh, the 10 years or so field work that I did in Iran. And it's based, it's an analysis of daily life since the revolution. So part of what happened is, yes, an Arantian, and I was interested in these political questions, but, uh, and I had access to all sorts of um, interesting people, etc. But how to approach this? And part of that was um, also the question, again, of political sensitivities and real political risk, especially for people that I knew in Iran. But at the same time, 
what had always been uh, difficult for me to figure out was very ordinary things, right? I came to Iran when I first started going. I spoke no Farsi. I had not been trained in Middle East politics. I didn't know nothing <laughs> right? Yeah. in terms of real practical daily realities. And I had to learn. Right. If you if you're curious, what I really believe is, and this is where I started saying about a his is Arendt is Arendt is a historical thinker. I mean, you, you have to know what the background is, right? Sure. So that means yeah. not just the historical background, but like why people do things on a daily basis the way they do, and not just the official version. And the official version may be a historical academic version, like what the what the look of the logic of practices. Okay, and that's a reference to Bourdieu, right? The logic of local practice. Yeah. So, um, but at some point, I realized that's what I had really to talk about, and so the the book the book project really combines these sort of very local, very discreet uh, things, rituals of hospitality, um, of of uh, food preparation, right? Of of how people tell jokes with with efforts to put this in a much larger significance that's not only political, but also sort of national cultural kind of, um, you know, it's a, it's a, in that sense, it's a, it's a multidisciplinary, um, investigation of, of, yeah, Iranian experience, right. In Iran since 1979, the changes since then. So that's the project. And once we finish speaking, I will. I, sh- I should be getting. Back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry for for uh, distracting you from such an important task, but I'm really, really keen to to read this when you're done. It's going to be very exciting, and one of the things that I'm I'm so thankful that we were able to to talk through is just the power of political theory to to understand events across the region beyond traditional Middle East studies or history or political economy or international relations, whatever it may be. Political theory has so much to offer, so much to to, to help us with in terms of understanding life, understanding experience, power relations, and so much more. So I'm so thankful that we could do this, Norma. It's been absolutely fascinating, and thank you so much again for your time. This was really fun. Um, really, thank you for, for speaking and um, uh, talk talk more. Talk soon. <laughs> Sounds good, Norma. Good luck with the book and thank you so much again. Until thank the next you. time. Bye-bye.